Join Dr. Robert McGoring for Outliving Cancer, the podcast that provides each patient the tools and information they need to outlive their cancer. I'm Robert McGorney, and this is Outliving Cancer. I'm going to be discussing several remarkable examples of patient responses in uh, individuals of advanced years who, under normal circumstances, would not be candidates for aggressive chemotherapy. We discussed a little bit the concept of chronologic age and physiologic age, and also a, a, a report that I conducted with a colleague on the study of cancer biology using age as a measure. Do people who are older do as well as people who are younger when they get the same chemotherapy for the same diagnosis? If you have lung cancer and you're 75, will you do as well as someone who has lung cancer when they're 45? And it turns out that, as we showed, there were relatively little differences between the drug sensitivity, the drug activity, and the older and the younger population. So I, I would like to review some truly remarkable outcomes that reflect precisely this phenomenon. And the phenomenon is treating patients for their physiological age, even with intensive therapies, to control the cancers that would otherwise end their life. The first uh, example of this came to me uh, when I was relatively new to clinical practice. I was approached by a woman who was 90 years old, and she came to see me with a lung cancer, a type of lung cancer called small cell cancer of the lung. And I met her, she was very nice, and she was kind of slender and tall and very spry, very vigorous, very engaging, really fun, sweet gal. <clears throat> and I remember meeting her and going over her records and looking at her exams. And she had something called extensive stage small cell cancer of the lung. Small cell cancer of the lung is a, is a particularly aggressive form of lung cancer. It, it shows up usually in the center of the chest. It tends to spread like wildfire. It's also called oat cell cancer of the lung. It's usually associated with cigarette smoking, and it has rather unusual features. It has neuroendocrine features. There are certain strange chemical phenomena. Some people get low sodiums as a result of it. It has a tendency to spread to the brain. It's, it's not a nice cancer. And the trouble is that it can be rapidly lethal. So I looked at this 90-year-old woman who had small cell cancer of the lung, and I thought, if I don't treat this woman, she will die of her cancer. And if I treat this woman, she might die of treatment. And, and I thought, well, um, the treatment for this is relatively powerful stuff. You have to give a combination of two drugs, cisplatin or carboplatin plus etoposide, VP16. It's given three days in a row every three or four weeks. It causes a lot of side effects, hair loss, lowered blood counts, all the side effects of chemo. And I really agonized. I thought, Gosh, I mean, am I going to kill this lady by treating her? But I knew from my analysis that she was sensitive. I mean, I, I could tell that this combination would work. And, and based on her age and everything else, I felt, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be denying a patient the opportunity to get better 
based only on her age. So with some trepidation, I decided I would treat this lady. I will give her the standard carboplatin and the VP16 therapy and, and you know, do my best to get her through it. And we did. And we treated her. And she responded immediately. We got completely better. She lost her hair. And all the side effects of chemotherapy were still going to manifest. But she tolerated the treatment. The doses were reasonable, maybe a little adjusted. But we knew going in that she was sensitive to the combination. We knew that, that she was of good physiologic age from a standpoint of vigor. And we knew unequivocally that six or eight weeks later she'd be dead if I didn't treat her. So after the first year, <laughs> she was very well, which was unusual for small cell. Usually they relapse within 12 to 18 months. But she did very well. And she rounded her corner into her second year and remained in remission. And I remember that this 92-year-old woman, who was very spry and very vigorous and very fun and really sweet, told me that to celebrate her 92nd birthday, she was going to a club in Lakewood, California, up at the southern border of Long Beach and Lakewood, near where my laboratory is, and she was going to dance on the stage of cowboy country. She was going to go up there for her 92nd birthday and have a drink and dance. And she did. She put on a Western outfit, and she put on a hat over her rather thin hair, and she got up on stage and danced. And it was the, the, the craziest thing that this 92-year-old woman was dancing on a country western stage two years into a diagnosis that would have killed her virtually two years earlier. And it was a real eye-opener for me. It was a real lesson learned. Now, clearly, people with cancer, no matter how old they are, don't live forever. And she ultimately began to get into trouble. It was after her second year, 92nd birthday. And she began to get into trouble, and she, she came to me and said that she felt that she had finally rounded a corner and didn't want to take any further treatment and felt that she would maybe cash it in. But that there was one thing she still wanted to do. She wanted to go up in the Goodyear blimp. And I guess they have some sort of a make-a-wish or some kind of foundation or something. And she managed to get to take a ride in the Goodyear blimp. The Goodyear blimp, which is... Uh, station just uh, uh, near Torrance, California, is, uh, uh, is a blimp. And uh, this Zeppelin travels around the L.A. area, Great L.A., and you'll see it, and you'll hear it at night sometimes, flying overhead. And she got a ride on the Zeppelin, and she traveled around, and then she came back, and she ultimately had to be hospitalized. And I remember seeing her toward the end of her life, uh, three years almost into this whole process, and they had given her a, a Goodyear blimp a balloon, a helium balloon. It was about three feet long, and it looked just like the, the, the Goodyear plant. And I remember I'd go to visit her at the hospital on the west wing of the hospital, which was where she ultimately died. And uh, she had this cool blimp floating around in the room. <laughs> and I don't know, it just the image of this almost 93-year-old woman having lived such a full life, three years longer than she would ever have lived, with her little Goodyear blimp floating around in the room. It, it was just something so poignant. And I was so glad I treated her. And it was a lesson for me that you don't withhold therapy for people because of their age. You, 
you treat according to physiology. And she was a, she was a lovely example of that. And so that, that stuck in my mind. And some years later, I had a second example. This is a, another case that, that I might have gone one way or another. And in this instance, it was an 83-year-old gentleman who was brought to me by his son. They came to my laboratory. I met them in consultation. And when they arrived, the, the father, Tony, was this charming old Italian fellow with a funny Italian accent. And he was funny, I remember, because he always wore a belt and suspenders. It was a kind of insurance policy, I guess. But he always had his suspenders under his shirt. And I examined him, and he looked okay, but he was pale because he had lost seven units of blood. He had been bleeding actively. And they had done a, a look inside an endoscopy, and lo and behold, he had a big bleeding gastric cancer, a stomach cancer. And he was 83. And I, I looked at the son, and I said, you know, this is really not going to do him well, and I'm not comfortable that we would treat him, and he's already requiring blood transfusions. And the son was so desperate to save his father, and he said, please try to help him. And, and so with the biopsy, I, I took a look at, at the results and I, I realized that he carried a particular feature, which we all look for in gastric cancer, called HER2, human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, HER2. So he was HER2 positive. And, and we realized that that HER2 positivity really gave us a leg up. But with such a large gastric cancer and being so ill, I didn't feel comfortable just giving him the, the antibody that goes after that. It's not a very effective treatment, but it can be highly effective when you combine it with other drugs. So we, we worked on his case a little bit, and we, we came up with a combination that I would expect not normally be given to him. See, the combination that everybody would use in that setting came from a clinical trial called the TOGA trial some years ago. And the TOGA trial combined full FOX, a combination of chemotherapies, with Herceptin, the antibody against HER2. <clears throat> and the TOGA trial was highly successful. And I would have to say today worldwide is the standard of care. If you have HER2 positive gastric cancer, you get this antibody, Herceptin, goes after the HER2, targets the treatment, and you get this Herceptin combined with Folfox. And it, and it works pretty well. It's a, it's a good combination. It's not unduly toxic. But at 83 years of age, I wanted something less toxic and I wanted something that would be more effective. And so we crafted a combination of carboplatin, milder than oxaloplatin, and taxol, which would be, at lower doses, relatively easy to give. So I thought, well, if I'm going to help this guy, I've got to go pretty strong. I can't, I can't back away because he'll die. I mean, he was bleeding to death without me. And I thought, well, well what if I crafted this combination. And the combination of carboplatin and taxol is, is, is used in, say, gastroesophageal cancer, mostly with radiation. So it wasn't, it wasn't that many standard deviations removed from normal, but it was a little abnormal. And so I combined carboplatin, taxol, and Herceptin. And I gave him his first cycle without almost any side effect. And then subsequent cycles every three weeks. And within about four cycles, he was in complete remission. I mean, complete remission. PET scan, everything, perfect. No tumor marker, 
No nothing. And I finished out, I think, another two cycles and put him on Perceptin as a maintenance. And he remained in remission for seven years. In fact, almost eight. He ultimately had some other medical problems, one of which was a lymphoma, completely unrelated. And I treated that too. And he went into remission. He lived another several years. And so just this past year, he died at 90. Seven, seven, almost eight years into his 90th year, almost 91, into a diagnosis that could have killed him in days or weeks. But the reason that, that he did well was that he was of a, appropriate physiology. He had a really good attitude. And there was a drug combination for him. It was something that was going to work for him. So we weren't guessing. We weren't indiscriminately poisoning him. We were using our best methods and our best tools to get him into remission, which we did. And he lived a wonderful life. He had a lovely niece that came with him on many of his visits. He was a wonderful guy. He used to come to our fundraisers. We, we raise money for medically indigent patients, and we donate our care in some patients. And he would come every year to our fundraiser. We would, we would hold it here in Los Angeles at a really nice restaurant called Stephen's Steakhouse, the family of whom were very kind to, to donate their efforts based on my work with their family. And, and, and he would come every year to the Stephen's Steakhouse comedy night, and he would come back afterward and comment for me on the meal. He would tell me how the steak was cooked or whether he liked the shrimp or whatever. He was, he was just a delightful guy, and I felt so fortunate that I could provide him this seven years of life and his family and everybody. And it was, it was a good experience. And I mean, he didn't live forever. He, I, he was in his 91st year and was living in a, in a facility by that time. And I guess everyone's time comes. But it was, it was a great story, and he was a great guy, and I, I really liked him. My next example of this is, is even maybe a little more striking. This is a delightful woman who came to visit me. She was a patient under the care of the Kaiser system. She lived in the L.A. area, and her daughter was the publisher of a, of a newspaper. And um, somewhere along the line, they had learned of my work, and the daughter was insistent that her mother come with her. Now, the mother had been diagnosed uh, at 88 with advanced ovarian cancer. And she had had surgery and post-operative chemotherapy. And uh, she did well. And when she turned 89, she recurred, which is actually quite common. Ovarian cancer, when treated with conventional therapies, <clears throat> generally patients live between one and two years and then begin to suffer likelihoods of recurrence. And so a substantial number of people with advanced ovarian cancer do recur. And we can treat them very often, but, but in this age group, in a now 89-year-old patient, her doctor turned to her and said, well, Marjorie, you've had a good run, and uh, we think that now that you've recurred, and you've had surgery and conventional chemotherapies, the carboplatin taxol combination, we think that uh, you've probably done as well as you can do. So we're, we're not going to really consider further therapy. And I, I didn't know the patient. I didn't know anything about her. But she, the next thing I know, she shows up in my office with her daughter, and they're insistent that we help her. 
So I examined the patient. I looked over her case, and lo and behold, she had fluid accumulation in her lung. And I said to her, well, if that fluid in your lung is cancerous, and we were able to get that, if we could aspirate that, I would be able to test you and see if there's something out there for you. You know, the fact that she was 89 notwithstanding, she was very vigorous. She was rather plump and, and round, but, but healthy and well and, and full of life. And I thought, well, with my experience with the old, older patients, if she turns out to be sensitive to something and they want to do it, we might, we might be able to help her. So in the office that day, right in my office, I put a small catheter into the chest cavity between the ribs. I pulled out about 1,000 cc's of fluid, and it was full of cancer cells. So now I had the opportunity to look at this patient, not just as a patient who might get treated, but as a rather vigorous 89-year-old who could do well if treated. And the daughter and uh, patient came back, and they said, uh, that they wanted to take treatment. And I said, well, I'm not part of the Kaiser system. So they asked me to contact their doctor. And the doctor was flummoxed. He couldn't imagine that I would be recommending treatment. He thought, he, he thought I was crazy. He said, she's 89 years old. She's got re recurrent ovarian cancer. She has a pleural effusion. It's stage four disease. You're nuts. I said, look, she's going to respond. I know. You've got to give her this. So he said to me, well, I've never given this combination. It was a combination I'd been working on and actually had taken forward in clinical trials in breast cancer and in ovarian cancer, and they'd been highly successful trials. One of them was a national clinical trial that was highly successful. And so he said, well, I've never given that. I've never, I've never used that combination. So I said, don't worry, I'll write your orders. Sort of interesting experience. I was writing the orders for the Kaiser doctor, and actually nicely, kindly, he agreed to do it. And so here was this 89-year-old patient trundling into his infusion suite with her daughter uh, every three weeks and getting this combination of chemo, really, you know, a nice, relatively mild combination that didn't have a lot of side effects, like she didn't lose her hair and she didn't have a lot of nausea and vomiting, and she tolerated it beautifully, and she got four cycles of therapy and went into complete remission and never relapsed, never recurred. Now, at 90 years of age, this was a little more than a year after I'd met her, she had a 90th birthday. And it was so remarkable that this woman, now two years plus into, <clears throat> into uh, ovarian cancer and one year plus into recurrent, it was so remarkable that she had survived that they held the party at a, at a, um, a little uh, community hall in Signal Hill uh, attached to the signal uh, governmental office. And they had a big party for the 90th birthday for this lovely Marjorie. And, and, and I would have to say there must have been 100 people there. And they invited me to come. And my wife and I went to the party. And I was so impressed that this woman had gotten to 90 a year after I'd met her with this combination that caused almost no, no side effects. And I felt so pleased that we had stuck by our guns and that we had gotten the cooperation of the Kaiser physician and that she had gotten better and that her daughter had stood by her through all this stuff. And I mean, everything just fell into place so nicely. And every year, Marjorie herself would also come to our fundraiser. In fact, we have a sort of fun event 
every time we have one of these survivor fundraisers, we have all of the remarkable experiences, all the great outcomes come up. We take a photo with them up on the stage, and it's a pretty big crowd of people who have survived because of our interventions. Anyway, she would come every year, and, she, and I'd invite her up to speak. <laughs> year after year, she'd come and speak. And, and she was 90, and then she was 92, and then she was 94, and then she was 96, and she was 98. And she would come every year with her sister and her son-in-law, and she was vigorous and well and active and spry, and she would knit caps. She was very sweet, and she would crochet caps and bring them to my laboratory, and we would give them to people who were getting chemotherapy who lost their hair and needed to keep their heads warm. And so we would distribute Marjorie caps to people. It was extremely sweet. And finally, at 99 years of age, a few weeks from her 100th birthday, she suffered a vascular event, a, a cardiac-related event, and died. And I went to her sort of celebration of life. It was just shy of her, night, of her 100th birthday. And I realized that this lady had lived almost 12 years, 10 plus, 11, based on a treatment that probably no one would have given her, based on a treatment that was highly effective and specifically selected, but really more than anything, something that could work for her at 89, as well as it might work for someone else at 29. And it was another example of age not mattering, chronologic age not mattering, as long as it's physiologic age, and, and as long as you pick your treatments intelligently, as long as you use smart approaches. So the last example of this concept of this not allowing ageism to get in the way of cancer therapy the last example is one that's going on as we speak. And it's a patient who came to me on March 11th of 2020. She was referred to me by one of my colleagues, and I'm always appreciative of my colleagues who, who are, are interested and like our work and whose patients do well under my care and under our laboratory-directed approaches. I'm always delighted to get the consultations. So one of my very nice colleagues sent me this patient. And she came to see me on March 11th of 2020, and she sat down in my office, and I started going through the records. And she was very vigorous and very engaging, uh, but she was uh, 85 years old. And I looked at the record, and it said, inoperable pancreatic adenocarcinoma. And I looked across, and I thought, I don't think I can treat you. Like, I, I just, I had that... Uh, recoil of, of like, I mean, we can't give powerful chemotherapy to patients with advanced inoperable pancreatic cancers, and she had a bunch of abnormalities in her liver, and it, it just, there was nothing good about the story. So she said, well, um, I would like you to treat me, and, and I would be very willing to undertake what you think is necessary, and so please do. And I was really stymied, because I thought, oh gosh, you know, gemcitabine and Paclitaxel, NAB Paclitaxel, hair loss, malaise, fatigue, she'd be miserable. Or then I thought, you know, some modification of fulfirinox, which is a widely used treatment for this disease. Oh, God, I thought, how could we possibly put it through two-day infusions of chemotherapy? It just didn't, it just, I couldn't imagine doing it. I was, I was just, uh, I was just, you know, sort of sidling foot to foot, figuring out what to do. So she said, well, well, why don't we do a little biopsy of the tissue, and then if you can work your magic, maybe we find something. And I was a little hesitant to do that, but I agreed, and we, and we did. We did a 
small biopsy of the, the mass that was a lymph node. We removed it. And lo and behold, she was sensitive to a particular treatment, a, a combination I'd been working on for many years, uh, cisplatin plus gemcitabine plus 5-FU or capsidabine. And I thought, wow, this is perfect for her. And the beauty of this combination, appropriately administered, is it has almost no side effects. It's such a good combination when you use it correctly. So I said to her, well, you know, she came back to see me with the daughter, and I said, I, I think I can help you. Now, you have to understand, this is a patient whose tumor marker is 130 times normal. It's like five, I think it was 4,860 or something. And, 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 you know, the, there was every reason for her to do poorly. But I, I thought, well, if we do this right, we can, we can get away with low doses and we can get away with the combination that's going to work for her. And we started treatment. And she got better immediately. Her abdominal pain disappeared. Her low back pain disappeared. She started to gain weight. Her performance status improved. And this very vigorous and very spry and very sharp and very active woman went into remission. And her tumor markers went back almost to normal. They were still a little above normal, but they were close to normal. Liver functions were all normal. She'd regained normal weight. She was up to completely perfect activity level. And from March, April to completion of our sixth cycle in the summer of 2020, she announced one day that she was going on vacation to see her family in Austin, Texas. And I thought, great, go, do it. So she trundled off to Texas for a few weeks, and she came back. And with everything so well, I decided to consolidate her. And in collaboration with my colleagues uh, in, the, in the radiation oncology department, we did cyber knife radiation to the area of original disease after it had all shrunk down to the smallest possible dimension. We did CyberKnife. And, uh, you know, this past week uh, was the one-year anniversary of my meeting her. And uh, as we speak, she's back in Texas on vacation with her family. She's approaching her 87th birthday in June. And all of that would have been impossible if we hadn't taken her seriously, if we hadn't foregone the age of the patient, and if we had listened to the general guidelines not to intensively treat patients who are older and things, she'd be dead. I mean, there's no question that advanced pancreatic cancer would be dead. It doesn't, there's a terrible survival, you know, months. So this was an example of someone who was alive now, coming into her second year, living a completely normal life, uh, who would never possibly have been true uh, without this approach, without A, taking her care seriously and, her, and, and, and not worrying about her age, and secondly, um, being willing uh, to, to craft a treatment, a combination, based on her tissue culture studies that was uniquely and specifically active for her. So these cases, these sort of remarkable, I guess you might call from the academic community, anecdotes, which I guess they are, but they're anecdotes of extraordinary power because they represent an opportunity to do something that almost no one is willing to do, that is take patients individually seriously and treat them according to their need, not according to their age or their stage. So what are the lessons? What's the lesson learned from this? Well, through the lens of age of patients, but through the lens of, of, of other considerations, there are no average patients. There isn't any average 90-year-old. There are patients in need who require our attention and intervention. There are no average outcomes. 
a patient of 89 years of age isn't supposed to go into complete remission with second-line chemotherapy or ovarian cancer, nor is a patient of 83 years of age supposed to go into complete remission with a personally crafted combination of treatments, nor, nor the recent, any of these patients. None of them are supposed to. They got in, into remission because they got the right treatment when they needed it. So each patient should receive the right treatment for them, regardless of diagnosis, stage, or age. Our job as cancer doctors is to save lives and to do the best we can for every patient. Using my approach, the laboratory technique that we use at the Negroni Cancer Institute, we have some luxuries that maybe not every doctor shares, but we're certainly willing to work with other doctors to help their patients the way we help ours.